Well, this morning, as, as we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through, through the Gospel of Luke, we are, we're going to be reading about an event that is often referred to as the transfiguration of Jesus, or sometimes just shorter, just called the transfiguration. But before we begin looking at that story, I want to start our time together by reading some words that the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to start there because I want you to see just how significant this event was uh, for Peter and for all the other disciples who were present with Jesus at his transfiguration. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly, uh, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's talking about the story that we're going to be looking at today. And this this story of the transfiguration of Jesus, it was a life-changing event for the apostle Peter. It was an event that Peter points back to there in 2 Peter as, as a defining moment where he had undeniable proof of who Jesus is. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We, we heard the voice of God, the Father. Can you imagine how life-changing that would be for you? Can you imagine? Who wouldn't like to see that? Anybody wouldn't like to see it? A few hands went up and they're like, oh, wait, no. Whoops, he got me. Yeah, we, who, who wants to see that? Who wouldn't? Like, that would be amazing, right? To be there, to see his majesty, and to hear the voice of God the Father speaking from heaven and saying, that's my son. Wow, what a moment it must have been. And that's the story that we're about to read uh, this morning. But before we jump in and begin our, our look at that story, last week, as we were finishing up our time together, I told you that we were going to take a few minutes this Sunday at the beginning to talk about the verse that we left off with last week. And this is in chapter 9, verse 27. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And uh, we're going to start in verse 27. But just a little bit of context for those who may not have been here last week. In verses 18 through 27, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples about who he really is. First, he asked them, he asked them a question. He said, who do the crowds say that I am? And, and they answer and they give him some of the different things that people are saying. But then after that, he asks them the most important question that they or any of us will ever answer. He said, as he looked at his disciples, he said, okay, that's great. But who do you say that I am? The most important question that they would ever answer. And Peter answered correctly. And he said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the long-awaited Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. But as soon as Peter said that, right after he says that, then Jesus went on to explain what that actually means for him as the Messiah, as well as what it's gonna mean for his followers. Jesus said, Yes, okay, yes, I am the Messiah. But because I am the Messiah, I must suffer many things. Uh, he says, I- I'm gonna be rejected, I'm gonna be killed, and I'm gonna be resurrected, raised on the third day. And then he said, as if that wasn't bad enough news for the disciples to hear, he says, and if anyone wants to come after me, they need to deny themselves take up their cross daily and follow me. Now I'm tempted. I want to go back through all those verses and explain what they mean. And all, but you just go back and you can you know, get a copy from the info desk or, or go back on YouTube and, and watch that message if, if you weren't here. 
But this was, I, I said this last week, this was a lot for the disciples to take in. This is not what they had expected. In their minds, the, the, the Messiah, he's not supposed to suffer, right? He's not supposed to be killed. What's he supposed to do? He's supposed to conquer. He's supposed to free them from the, from the, from the control and, and, and the oppression of the Romans. They were like, man, what? what? Jesus, what's, what's all this talk about suffering? What's all this talk about crosses and, and dying? This is not how it's supposed to, to play out. They were, ready to, they were ready to put a crown on Jesus' head, right? They were ready to begin ruling and reigning with Jesus, you know, his cabinet members, right? They're, they're ready for this. And Jesus says, no, nah, that's not exactly how it's all gonna go down, guys. First, first, I must suffer. I must suffer. This is not what they were planning. But in verse 27, where we left off last week, Jesus wraps up this conversation uh, with these words. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And I said, wow, aren't you excited to find out what he meant? And you said, yes. And I said, come back next week. So good, you're here. You, you, you came back. But Jesus, he looks at his disciples. He says, there are some of you standing here right now who are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God and they're thinking, okay, I don't know what all that suffering and death stuff was about, but that sounds like what we were expecting. That sounds good. I mean, it's good news anyway, at least for the some who are still going to be alive, right? Some who, who won't taste death before they see the kingdom. But what, what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean by this statement? Well, last week I told you that there's a lot of debate about what Jesus is talking about in this verse. What does he mean when he says that some of you won't taste death before you see the kingdom? I would love to give you a definitive answer. I, I told you this last week. It would be so great if I could say, this is exactly what Jesus meant. And so you say, great, now we know the answer to that and we can tell everybody how smart we are. But the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is I can't give you an absolutely definitive answer. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of speculation as to what he meant, but it's just actually, it's just not that clear. So here's what I can do. I can share with you this morning some of the more probable suggestions that I've read. Um, I can tell you where I lean on this, and then you'll probably say, good, I'm gonna lean the other way. <laughs> so that's fine. Here's what we'll do. You'll hear it. You'll pray about it. You'll ask God to reveal to you what you think he, he, he meant there, or what he meant there. And then when we get to heaven, we can go up and we can ask him. That's the first question you're gonna wanna ask Jesus when you get to heaven, right? Jesus, what did you mean in Luke chapter nine, verse 27? I've just been dying to ask you. You won't care at that point, right? You're not gonna care. But anyway, it is an important discussion though. So you'd be like, well, then why are we talking about it? Because it's important and here's why. Some, and I'm going to use the little quotations here, some scholars read this statement from Jesus, and because they assume that Jesus is referring to his second coming, they falsely conclude that Jesus was wrong. They say he was wrong. He said that, that, that some of them would see his kingdom before they died. And guess what? They're all dead and he hasn't come again, so therefore Jesus must have been wrong. That's what they conclude. Now, I hope it does not surprise you to hear me say that I strongly reject that proposition. I reject it because I would suggest to you that because his second coming hasn't happened yet, and because all of the disciples have long since died, he could not have been talking about his second coming, and therefore he must have been referring to something else. He was referring to something else that they were gonna be witnesses of before they died, at least some of them, some of them. And I think that is a key. So, so what is he 
talking about here. Okay, well, the most common explanation amongst Bible commentators and, and, and teachers is that when Jesus made this statement, he was referring to his transfiguration. It's the story that we're about to read right now. And one of the stronger arguments for this, for this uh, proposition is that in each of the gospel accounts, in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, after Jesus makes this statement, the very next event in all three gospels is the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. It's about one week, about one week after he makes the statement, he takes some of his disciples, three of them actually, up on a mountain and they see Jesus in his glorified form. They, they, they get a preview of the coming kingdom. They get to see Jesus in his glorified form. So it could very well be that when Jesus said, some of you are gonna see the kingdom of God before you taste death, that he could have been referring to the transfiguration. Some of his disciples saw that. Not all, some. But, okay, but if that is indeed what Jesus had in mind, it's a little puzzling that Jesus makes mention of, of some of them not tasting death before this occurs. Why is that puzzling? Because it's a week later. It's a week later and none of them tasted death. And, and the way that this sentence is constructed in the original language, it, it's, it's, the implication is that the opposite is true. Some will be alive still, others will not. It's implied that there's some of them are going to taste death before they see this thing, which is why many Bible teachers, for example, you know, he's one of my favorites, Chuck Swindoll, many, many, many Bible teachers like Chuck Swindoll believe that Jesus may have been speaking about his resurrection, his ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the, the ushering in of this new kingdom. It's the already but not yet part of his kingdom. All three of these events, all three of these events, his, his resurrection, his ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost happened after one of those disciples had died. Who was it? Judas. Judas had died. While the other disciples, they saw Jesus in his resurrected, glorified body. Judas did not see that. Judas never received the Holy Spirit coming in and dwelling him at Pentecost. Judas didn't see or experience any of these things. So, so there's two possibilities, right? There's, there's the transfiguration, there's his resurrection, his ascension, uh, or, or the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And there's other suggestions as well. Not, not as popular, actually one of the more popular ones is uh, the belief that Jesus might be referring to the, um, to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, some people believe that's God's judgment. He's, you know, he's judging uh, the Jews. And so they think that that's part of what Jesus is talking about. I, I've heard other suggestions. People think maybe he's talking about you know, uh, the apostle John seeing, seeing a vision when he wrote, when he was on the island of Patmos and he saw a vision, he wrote the book of Revelation. Maybe that's what he was talking about. So do you know the answer? You got it figured out? Let me tell you where I lean. Okay, so here's where I lean. I currently lean towards the idea that Jesus was referring to his resurrection, his ascension, and, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Something that only some of the apostles saw, but, but Judas did not see. But I'm also very comfortable with the idea that he may have been referring to the transfiguration that happens in a week later. I, I'm totally good with that. Jesus could have meant either of those, or maybe he meant something else that he'll tell us when we, when, when we get there. So anyway, now that we know all that, it's important though, because we, we need to understand that some people are gonna look at a passage like this and they say, see, Jesus was wrong, so the Bible's full of errors, you can't, you can't trust it. But Jesus didn't mean that, clearly. If he meant his second coming, he would have already come. Well, speaking of his transfiguration, let's, let's jump in now. So this is um, Luke chapter nine, beginning in verse 28, looking now at this 
this amazing story. Verse 28 says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Luke says about eight days later. So it's, it's been about a week after Jesus had spoken with his disciples and, and they were in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. Luke, as we've, as we've been going through this, we, we see how Luke consistently highlights the importance of prayer in the life and ministry of Jesus. But this time he invites these three with him. And as we read the Gospels, one of the things that becomes very clear is that Jesus had a particularly close relationship. I mean, he had his 12, right? He had his 12, but he had a particularly close relationship with, with three of these guys. Sort of a, you could think of it as like the inner circle of the disciples. Th these are the same three disciples that we read about Jesus inviting with him into the home of Jairus when he raised his daughter. Remember that story? He only brought... Jairus and his wife and, and these three disciples in with him. These are the same three disciples that Mark tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus, on the night before Jesus is gonna die, that he, he goes to the garden to pray and he takes Peter, James, and John further into the garden with him. He gets away from all the others, just these three with him. It makes me think of this question. Who are, who are the people that are in your inner circle? Who are, who, are the, who are the people that you turn to? In Mark's gospel, it says, when he, began, when, when he began, Jesus, to be greatly distressed and troubled, he took Peter, James, and John with him deeper into the garden to pray. Who are the people that you go to when you need someone to pray with you, when you need someone to pray for you? Who are the people who turn to you that's important. It's important for us to have people like that in our lives, and it's important for us to be those types of people for others. And so Jesus, he, he, he takes Peter, he takes James, and he takes John, and he brings them up on this mountain for a time away with him to pray. And I don't know how long they prayed with Jesus or, or how long they listened to Jesus pray, but if you look down in your Bibles, we won't flip there yet on the screen, but in your Bibles, if you look ahead at verse 32, we're told that they fell asleep. Luke says that Peter and those who were with him were, what does it say? Heavy with sleep. They, they didn't just nod off. Like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's the Sunday morning sermon. It's the head bob. Then you startle your head awake. Nod off, right? And by the way, I, I always laugh when people come up to me after, like, I'm so sorry, I was nodding off during the sermon. I, 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 I know you saw me. And I'm like, it's cool. It's no big, I do the same stuff. But not, not when I'm preaching usually, but, <laughs> but, but when other people, no, you know, it just happens, right? It's, it's warm in here, it's comfy, it's cozy. Not, and I, I feel okay with it. Honestly, if you fall asleep, that's good. I must have a soothing voice. That's so... You're welcome. Some of you just, you need a nap. It's good. I'm glad that you could come here. So, but here, here's, the, here's the thing. I don't, I'm not offended by it. How, how about the, was it Eutychus fell asleep when, Peter, when, uh, when Paul was preaching? Hey, he fell asleep with the apostle. Paul was preaching, people fell asleep. When Jesus is praying, his closest disciples fall asleep on a regular basis. So I'm, I'm not offended by it at all. But anyway, these guys, they, they are out cold. Right, they are alcohol. If I had to bet, I would guess they're snoring. Right, these. I mean, these are they're heavy. They are deep in sleep. Now, traditionally, this mountain that that, that they're meeting on is suggest uh, the suggested location for this mountain is is Mount Tabor. It's a smaller mountain that's not too far from Nazareth. Uh, how ma however, many commentators agree that a more likely location for this event would probably be somewhere on Israel's highest peak, which is Mount Hermon. My friend up in the balcony sprained his ankle on Mount Hermon at the top. We were hiking down Mount Hermon and Nathaniel 
rolled his ankle. Can you imagine having to hike down the tallest peak in Israel with a, with a sprained ankle? Yeah, we didn't even offer to carry him. We're like, <laughs> no. he wouldn't have let us. He wouldn't have let us, no. But it's, it's a very, very tall peak. And as you can see on the map, if you're, if you're looking at the map, you can see that, that Mount Hermon is very close to Caesarea Philippi, the, where the last story took place, okay? And, and so it, it's probably more than likely a better location for, for the site of the transfiguration, although it could have been Mount Tabor. If it was Mount Tabor, they really, they took off, right? After the Caesarea Philippi, they took off and, and headed south pretty fast, but, but it's possible. The other thing that I, I think is, is a strong evidence that it could be Mount Hermon is the fact that in Matthew, he says that Jesus led his three disciples up a, he says, up a high mountain, by themselves. And so when you're in Caesarea Philippi, I mean, it's a pretty big high mountain right over our shoulder, right? So pretty good chance that it may have been at Mount Hermon. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what's really important in this text isn't what mountain that it took place on, right? It's what took place on this mountain. As the disciples are, are fast asleep and as Jesus was deep in prayer, Luke says, that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew describes it this way. He says, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. That's Matthew 17, verse two. Mark says that his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark chapter nine, verse three. That's because they didn't meet my grandmother. Man, she, she could get a stain out of anything. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's amazing, right? As you read these descriptions, you get the sense that these writers, they are trying their best to describe what is simply indescribable. What's the brightest thing that they had ever seen? What's the brightest thing they'd ever seen? The sun, right? They're like, oh, the, it's just, his face became like, like the sun. It was blinding. It was so bright. It was like looking into the sun. And, and it didn't stop with his face. He, he, even, even the clothes that he was wearing became brighter and whiter than anyone on earth could possibly bleach them. Luke says that his appearance, it was altered, altered. And the Greek word that is translated here as altered is the word that, from which we get our English word metamorphosis, metamorphosis. In other words, the appearance of Jesus was radically changed on that mountain. Matthew says that he was transfigured before them in Matthew chapter 17, verse two. Brothers and sisters, this was a super natural revealing of the glory and the majesty that belongs to Jesus. It's, he's the son of God. He is the second member of the triune Godhead, right? And, and for a moment here, it was an unveiling of the radiance that belonged to Jesus before he wrapped himself in humanity and entered this world that he had created. And... It was a preview of the glory that we are going to behold for all eternity. It was amazing. And Luke tells us that it wasn't just Jesus and the three disciples who were there on the mountain. It gets, it gets I don't know if it gets better, but it, it gets bigger. In verse 30, we read that, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke says, he says, and behold. And you've heard me say this before, but that's like, that's the equivalent of saying, check this out, right? Behold, you're not gonna believe what happened next. Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus. Listen, we're talking about two of the biggest heroes from the Old Testament scriptures, right? They're now standing there with Jesus. 
but why Moses? Why Elijah? I mean, there's a lot of, of, of other great heroes in the Old Testament, right? There's other people that God could have chose to send. What, what about King David? Jesus was of the line of David, right? Why not his ancestor David? Or how, about, how about Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation? Why didn't he send Abraham? Why do you think God chose Moses and Elijah specifically? Well, it helps if we just consider what we know about Moses and Elijah. In the book of Exodus, we read that, that God chose Moses as the one who would lead his people out of their slavery in Egypt. God chose Moses as the one who was gonna meet with him on Mount Sinai where he gave the 10 commandments. You guys like that story? That's a good one, right? God chose Moses as the one who would write out the various, the rules and the regulations for God's people on, you know, on how they were to worship the Lord and how they were to perform sacrifices and how they were to build the, the, the tabernacle, right? Moses, the, he's the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In, in, in Judaism, they're referred to as the, the Torah, right? Or otherwise called the law the law. Moses is so connected and associated with the law that it is often referred to as the law of Moses or the Mosaic law, right? In the minds of the Jewish people, Moses represents the law. Moses represents the law. But then there's Elijah. Elijah, he was one of the prophets, right? Elijah represents the prophets. He, he's actually one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And, and he is the one, according to Malachi chapter four, that God is going to send before the great and awesome day of the Lord, right? When Jesus returns as that, as that conquering king, he's going to send Elijah ahead of that. Elijah, he was a, he was a prophet who performed extraordinary miracles, right? We did a whole series on Elijah about a year ago. Elijah, or is it two years ago? I guess it was two years ago now. But anyway, Elijah, uh, he, he raised someone from the dead. He's the one that called down fire from heaven. Uh, Elijah also had a moment where he met with God on a mountain when he was fleeing from Jezebel, right? That's a great story. But Elijah, this, he was a bold spokesperson of God in the Old Testament, confronting the evil and idolatry of his day. And so in the same way that Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets. Now, why is that fascinating? Well, if, if you read the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, you often see that the Old Testament scriptures, the collection of the Old Testament scriptures are referred to as the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What's he talking about? The Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He is the one that all of the law and the prophets point to right? There's a great story in Luke chapter 24. Last chapter in Luke. I'm going to give you a preview, okay? But this is a great story. It's after the resurrection and Jesus is walking along a road that goes down to Emmaus. He's walking with two of his disciples, two followers, not, not the 12, but two other followers of his. And they are discouraged. They're downcast. They are depressed about what's happened with Jesus. And as they're walking with Jesus, we're told that in verse 27 of chapter 24, that beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, wouldn't you just love to have been there for that, right? I mean, that, that has to have been the best sermon teaching never recorded right? That, oh man, I would have, I, yeah, I would love to have been there for that. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And, and so there on this mountain, right, with, with, with Peter, James, and John, and standing with Jesus, you've got Moses and Elijah, representatives of the law and the prophets. And Luke says that they were speaking with Jesus about what? About his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. As Jesus's time on earth is beginning to, it's coming to a close, right? Jesus is, is, is about to begin his journey to Jerusalem where he is going to suffer and die. He's, he's, gonna, he's gonna fulfill the things that he talked about that we looked at last week. He said, the son of man must suffer many things to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so now, on the mountain, Jesus knows this is what's coming. This is what's coming, guys. You gotta know this. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. And now he's got these three with him on the mountain with Moses and Elijah standing there. And what are Moses and Elijah talking about? They're talking with him about the things that are about to happen in Jerusalem. Again, wow. Wish we had written down what they were saying with Jesus. But all we know is that they were talking about his departure. And as they're discussing these things in verse 32, we read that now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. They're sleeping through this whole thing. This is like crazy, right? Like if you just woke up a few minutes earlier, we could have known what they were talking about, maybe. Just kidding. Verse 33, and as the men were, par- uh, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love this little comment. Not knowing what he said. I love that. Can can you imagine just waking up to this scene? You've been startled awake before, but can you you just imagine? Peter, James, and John, they've been out cold, right, for, for who knows how long. And as they begin to open their eyes immediately they are blinded, right? They're blinded by the the radiance and the glory that is coming from the face of Jesus, right? And and as they're like, you know, like, you know, like if someone comes in the room and just flips on a bright light, you know what that's like. It's like, wow, it takes a while. You can't even see, right? So these guys wake up to this. This is the most blinding, it's as bright as the sun, and they're like, wow. And then it's like, as their eyes try to start to adjust, they can't even look in his face, but they see there's two other people standing there with him. Like, wait a minute, hold, hold on. Is that Moses? Is that Elijah? What? I mean, this is crazy. I don't what's going on with Jesus' face right now, but wow, we got Jesus, we got Moses, we got Elijah standing here on this moment uh, on this mountain with us. What, what a moment this had to have been for these guys. These are their heroes, biblical heroes. These are the people that they've, they've read about since they were kids. They've heard stories about this. Now, don't, don't ask me how they knew that that's Moses or Elijah. Maybe Moses was still carrying around 10 commandments or something. I don't know. But they knew. It's not like they had pictures of them hanging on their walls at home or anything like that. So I, I don't know, but they knew that that's Moses. That's Elijah, very much alive. And by the way, they are there in their glorified bodies too. How encouraging. What you have to understand about Judaism at that time is that, that a lot of them believed in some sort of a, of a resurrection, but it was really fuzzy in their theology. They weren't really sure, but what those disciples were learning that moment is, oh yeah, when we die, we don't die, Right? Look at those guys. They are glowing too. We're going to get new bodies one day. This is incredible and incredible. It was an extraordinary privilege and blessing for these disciples to see Jesus in his glory with Moses and Elijah. Wow. This was a moment that they would never, ever forget. Would you? Would you? No, this, this is, they, they were literally having a, what you would call one of those mountaintop experiences, right? This is a legitimate mountaintop experience. It's a type of moment that you think, you've had these, right? You've had these moments that are like, they're just, not, I mean, not that moment, but you've had moments that are like, this is a mountaintop moment, right? It doesn't get 
any better than this. Usually it's on vacation, right? <laughs> like you're in this place and like you have unlimited food and a beautiful place and a beautiful view and you're like, I could just stay here forever. And like, no, because you couldn't afford to. Um, you'd have to work. But anyway, it's like, it's just beautiful. Everything's perfect. It's a mountaintop experience. And in, in those moments, what are you thinking? Like, I just, I never want this to end. Who loves leaving a mountaintop experience, right? They're just, they're wonderful. And that's exactly what Peter's thinking. That's exactly what he's thinking. And, and, and so as Moses and Elijah are about to depart, Peter jumps in. He says, don't go. Don't go, don't go, don't, hold on, hold on. Jesus, you are so lucky that Peter, I mean, that James and John and I are here. This is great, it's perfect. How, what an opportunity. We can build three tabernacles for you guys. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We don't have to leave. We can just stay here on the mountain. Doesn't that sound great, Jesus? What a plan. Well, these tents, these tents, these, or other translations say tabernacles, they were temporary structures that the Jewish people would build each year for, for a very special feast. This is the last feast in the Jewish calendar. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And it's a festival that was meant to remind God's people of their time in the wilderness at the time when they, when they were living in tents and they didn't have a permanent dwelling place. It's a festival to remember how God rescued them from Egypt, and it's also a time to look forward in anticipation to the kingdom of the Messiah. And so Peter says, Peter says, oh, Moses is here, Elijah's here, the Messiah is here, let's build some tents and let's stay here for a while. And Luke says, not knowing what he said. Translation, nice try, Peter. You don't know what you're talking about, right? You don't know what you're talking about. As we read the Gospels, we discover that Peter had a habit. He had a habit of, 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 of saying things before thinking them through. By the way, sometimes, honestly, right, we think that there's these moments where like, I gotta say something, and usually... It's just better if you don't, right? Yeah, I love the proverb that says, even a fool is considered wise if he keeps his mouth closed. So better, better to just conceal it, right? And then to speak and, and, and reveal it, right? But so Peter, Peter has a habit of this. As, as, as we read the gospels, we see that. There, there was one time, in fact, when, when, when Peter's, it's actually last week. We didn't actually turn to it. But remember last week when we talked about the fact that Jesus said, I, I gotta go suffer. I've gotta do the, all this stuff. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us, he tells us that, that uh, Peter pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. He said, no way, Jesus. We're not gonna let that happen. You're not gonna suffer. You're not gonna die. And what did Jesus say to Peter? What did Jesus say to Peter? He said, he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Ooh. That is not what you want to hear as a follower of Jesus. He said, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, the problem was that at times, Peter's will, Peter's will was not in line with the Father's will, right? Peter's will stood in conflict with the will of the Father and the obedience of the son. And so once again here, Jesus is talking with, with Moses and Elijah about what? About going to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, let's not do that. Let's stay here. I'll build some tents and we can just stay here in this moment. And this time, it's not Jesus who rebukes Peter. Whew. Verse 34. Verse 34 says, as he, Peter, was saying these things, so as Peter is talking, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my 
son, my chosen one, listen to him. Whoa. As Peter is there talking, right? Trying to impose his will on the situation, this cloud descends upon them. Now, I, I mean, do you get scared of clouds? Clouds are scary, right? Like, who gets scared of clouds, right? But this is no ordinary cloud, is it, right? This is no ordinary cloud. It says that they, they were afraid. This is like, this is the cloud that would descend on the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It was symbolic. It was like showing. It was a visible manifestation that God's presence was there in the tabernacle. The cloud would descend and they would know that God is with them. This is the cloud that descended on Mount Sinai when God met with Moses. They were afraid because the presence of God the Father was descending on that mountain. You would be scared too, wouldn't you? You'd be terrified. And so they're there on this mountain uh, with God, and then they hear the voice of God. And he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. In Matthew's gospel, he says, he says it this way. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, does that statement from God sound at all familiar? If you've been here for the Luke series, it should. When was the last time that we, that we heard, the, or we didn't hear it, but we read about God the Father speaking words like that? Do you guys remember where it was? Yes, at his baptism. In Luke chapter three, we read that when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, and as he was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying what? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so now here, in the presence of, of Moses and Elijah, representatives of the law and the prophets, in the presence of, of these three of Jesus' closest disciples, God the Father declares, this is my son. This is my chosen one. This is the one of whom all the law and all the prophets point to. This is the Messiah. Peter, James, John, stop talking. This is my son. You listen to him. Wow. Can you imagine that moment. I mean, they just had the accessory of Philippi. They're like, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. Now the voice of God the Father from heaven says, that's right. Listen to him. When I read this passage, I can't help but think of the opening verses in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says, opens with this way. Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow. You read those verses in light of, of what the disciples were seeing on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're like, yup, that's right, he is. So God the Father speaks to he from heaven. He says, says, this is his son. So God says, listen to him. Him. Listen, if there's nothing else that you take away from this morning's message, let it be this. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Spend time with Jesus, genuinely seeking his heart and his will for your life. Peter's trying to impose his will. What he needs to do is listen to him. What is the will? 
of Jesus? What is the will of God the Father? And, and, and ask Jesus to reveal his will for your life, not just for your life. Ask him to reveal the will, his will for your day. Ask him to reveal his will for every moment in that day. Yeah, right, because a day is a, is, a, is a collection of moments, right? And our lives are a collection of days. You want to live a life that is in, in, in connection with his will and his plans? You live it moment by moment, walking in obedience to his will. But how are you going to know his will? By listening to him, seeking him, seeking his will for your life. This is how, it, how it's done. Listen to him. Well, in verse 36, the last verse we're going to look at, we're told that when, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Moses was gone. Elijah was gone. It's almost like God says, listen to him, and he removes all the other distractions. Get your eyes off, Moses. Get your eyes off, Elijah. You look at my son. Listen to him. And Peter and James and John, they're alone there with Jesus. And in Mark's gospel, Luke doesn't write this, but in Mark's gospel, we're told that as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they didn't understand what all that rising from the dead part was all about, but they knew they weren't supposed to tell anybody what they had seen, at least not yet. And according to Luke, according to Luke, they listened to him. They listened to him. Luke says that, and they kept silent and they told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. But make no mistake, what they had seen changed these men forever. It changed them. They, they would never forget the glory and the majesty that they, that they had seen on that mountain. They would never forget that. They would never forget the voice of God speaking to them on that mountain. In John chapter one, John was one of the, one of the disciples who was there, right? In John chapter one, he begins his gospel with these words. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's John chapter one, verse one. Then in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know that when John wrote those words, he could see what he saw on the mountain that day, right? He's remembering what he saw. He's remembering that voice. And as we read at the beginning, We'll read it again. In second letter, Peter said this, second Peter. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, Guys, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This, this changed them. It was a radical thing for them to, to, to be witnesses to. What Peter, James, and John witnessed on that mountain was it was a taste of the glory and the majesty that we are going to see, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a taste of what we are going to behold one day as we see Jesus face to face. Do you look forward to that? I mean, like, Revelation chapter four and five, go home and read it. Go home and read it, Revelation four and five. And here's the thing, we're not gonna taste it for a brief moment, right? It's gonna be for all eternity to behold the beauty of the Lord. I want to close with this thought. As monumental, and this was, this was a monumental event in the life of these disciples, right? But as, as, as monumental a moment as this transfiguration was for Peter, James, and John, 
It, it, it solidified what they knew to be true about Jesus. It did. But it was, it was Pentecost. It was at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt these believers, right? That's when they were transformed, not into people who believe something about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, but they became bold witnesses for Jesus. It was Pentecost. You know that after this transfiguration, you know that Peter's gonna blow it, right? We know that. He's gonna deny Christ and all that's gonna happen, right? They saw his glory on the mountain. They saw it. They heard the voice of God and yet they still were hiding in the upper room after Jesus was crucified. They were terrified. But after they were filled with the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, they were transformed, right? They became bold witnesses for Christ. And why is that significant? It's significant because of this. You weren't on the Mount of Transfiguration, were you? In fact, only three of his disciples got to go up on that mountain with him. The others didn't even get to see it. You didn't get to experience that. But you, if you are a follower of Jesus, have experienced the very thing that truly transformed these guys. There's something better than seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's having his Holy Spirit come and dwell within you, empowering you to live your life for him. That's amazing. And you have access to that. That's amazing. So, listen to him. He's God's son. Pursue him. Give everything you got to pursuing who Jesus is and what he has planned for your life. Listen to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the amazing privilege that you gave to these three men to see you glorified there on that mountain. What an incredible privilege it was. We thank you for the way that, that they could point back to that event as, as solid proof of who you are. But we thank you even more that you went to a cross, you died for our sins, you were raised from the dead, and you ascended to heaven and you sent your Holy Spirit to indwell all those who are followers of you. Wow. We thank you that by the, the, the indwelling presence of your Spirit, we too can live bold lives like the apostles, bringing the good news of the gospel to Ju Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God, empower us to live boldly for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.